Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Jeremy Hill, who reports on distressed debt for Bloomberg News in New York. We're delighted to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also very pleased to welcome back Jamin Patel, who covers utilities for Bloomberg Intelligence. Good to join, James. We'll be coming back to Jamin shortly. Lots of exciting stuff going on in the utility sector, so do stay with us. But first, Jeremy Hill with Bloomberg News. You've been digging deep into distressed debt and bankruptcy. We've had the pleasure of working together on that for years. A lot of companies are running into trouble at the moment with interest rates rising and the economy slowing, potentially tipping into a recession. Volatility in the financial sector doesn't help. Regional banks are struggling, and that means less capital for companies that really need it. On top of that, we have a growing anxiety about the debt ceiling. I'd have to go back to 2011 for the last time it's been this fraught. A a debt default by the US government would be a huge and potentially catastrophic event for the global economy. So, Jeremy, why the big spike in bankruptcies right now? That's a a really interesting question, James. Uh, I think what's so fascinating about this uptick over the weekend is that there isn't any one factor that caused it. There wasn't some sort of acute um, uh, influence. Like in 2020, COVID, it was something that nobody really saw coming. It was something like a a rogue wave that just pulled down a bunch of companies that were already on the edge. Um, And then it receded and uh, things got back to their, you know, abnormal. But this time interest rates are just starting to bite and it's very organic. And it it is while interest rates increased relatively quickly, um, it's just such a a, a fundamental problem for anybody that is exposed to floating rate debt. Um, So for context, sorry, just to interrupt, um, this past weekend, um, we're talking mid-May now, um, it was the busiest weekend for US bankruptcy filings since when and how many were there? There were seven filings um, between Sunday and Monday, and those are seven large, I'm doing air quotes, filings. That's uh, We define that to be $50 million of debt or more. And um, it's just not something that we have seen in the roughly 15 years that we've at Bloomberg have been tracking the data. Uh, a really busy couple of days is like three or four large bankruptcy filings. So th- these filings were across various sectors. There was some oil, some healthcare. Um, there was a fire protection company, a company that makes like uh, the, uh, smoke detectors and, and chemicals um, to put out fires. I mean, it was really across the spectrum. And it, the, the only thing that really unites almost all of them is that interest rates are higher now and lenders don't have the patience that they once did. So were they hitting a maturity wall? Did, was there a trigger in terms of, you know, you have to pay this debt by the weekend and if you don't, you go bust? I mean, what, what, what happened there? 
Um, in the case of Envision, that was Envision Healthcare is a KKR-backed company that uh, does physician staffing mostly. They like provide doctors um, for uh, for medical practices, is my understanding. Um, they they had some sort of debt payment that they needed to make recently, but that wasn't like all of the. It's not that like all of these companies um, were running into imminent maturities. Um, it is more so that these are companies that were kind of struggling, had been for a long time, really didn't have any hope of repaying their debt load. Um, and now that uh, the economy is not so great and interest rates are higher, lenders are not taking the time to be like, let's try to work out a deal or extend the runway a little bit more, see if we can find a way to turn it around. It's more just like, Game over, guys. It's uh, it, it's it's time to move on. And none of these names were surprised to us, right? We've been tracking a lot of these situations for a long time, and I think all of these have been on our calendar. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple that we didn't that we didn't see coming. Um, the fire protection company, and uh, there was a small biopharma company that makes uh, cancer therapies that weren't necessarily on the radar, but mostly they were. I mean, these are. Um, the other companies, some people might call them zombies. Maybe it's an overused term, but these were companies that, I mean, the writing has been on the wall for a long time. Um, they just had so much debt, and it was difficult to see them ever being able to pay that off. The question was just, when will time uh, be up? So they've been just kept alive by this um, you know, flood of cheap money that we'd seen over the last 10 years, and that finally ended, so they died. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, if you're a lender to one of these companies, um, and even you know that they're not going to be able to fully repay this debt load, um, but interest rates are super low and you need yield, and you don't want to be dealing with a, with a default with a bankruptcy, why not come up with some really creative way to extend the runway? It's a, it's a lottery ticket. It's, it's, it's a chance. But um, interest rates are higher. You can get yield elsewhere now. It's time to move on. And that's not just a flash in the pan for this year, right? This year has also been very busy for bankruptcies. What, what, how does that um, stack up versus history? Yeah, uh, it's already quite busy. I mean, <clears throat> the, the numbers, the precise numbers are escaping me in terms of the, the, the level of, uh, of filings. But I can tell you about the pace uh, relative to the historical levels. Um, we're having about the busiest year for large bankruptcies that we have seen since 2009. Um, 2009 wasn't a very happy time, so it's a, it's a little bit dark. But I will say this, uh, we're still nowhere close to that 2009 pace. It's usually, it changes week to week, but it's usually about half as busy as 2009 um, and just about as busy as 2020. They, they sort of change places sometimes. Uh, but it only seems to be getting busier. We're seeing more and more filings. So it's as bad as the 2020 shutdown of the entire global economy, which, which really did throw a lot of companies against the wall. Yeah, that's exactly right. But as I said earlier, this time it's, a, it's more organic. It's not some um, wild rogue wave that was caused by uh, you know, a, a fatal virus. This is simply money is more expensive now. The economy is a little rickety. So neither of those things seem like they're going to change anytime soon. If anything, rates probably stay higher for longer. The economy is not in great shape. Um, does that mean this trend continues? Does it get worse from here? For sure. I mean, I haven't, I haven't spoken to anyone recently who is under the impression that this uh, 
building distress is just going to disappear. I mean, your default forecasts uh, vary. Some people are extremely bearish, think that there are going to be tons and tons of filings, going to be a big tsunami. Other people are more conservative, but the general consensus is up. More defaults, more bankruptcies. And what does this say about the broad state of credit markets? I mean, we've been talking for a long time about a credit crunch, the easy money era being over. Um, and as we've said, companies have too much debt. Is this really the beginning of the end? If you're a low-quality borrower, you're going to have a hard time refinancing your obligations or getting um, reasonably priced debt. Um, it is as simple as that, and there are a lot of low-quality borrowers out there. Um, so I would say that's the, that, that is the, um, the biggest takeaway so far. Is it isolated to a particular sector? You know, last time around we saw a big uh, retail crunch. We've seen energy get hit pretty hard in the past. But is, you know, healthcare is also kind of under, under stress. But is, are there any sectors that really stand out? You know, retail, we've seen a couple of retailers um, run into trouble this year. But a lot of the crummy retailers were shaken out in 2020 or before. Um, healthcare is a sector that comes up a lot because wages um, have been a big problem. Um, broadly in the healthcare space. So if those don't come down soon, uh, you're going to see more trouble uh, in that in that area. And of course, real estate, especially commercial real estate, just tons of debt and offices are not filling up the way that they need to to support um, the those debt levels. So healthcare, CRE, they're coming up a lot. The word you use in your piece is zombies. Um, that's an interesting concept. I mean, these companies, um, you know, they're sort of living dead. They're sort of stumbling through with, you know, cheap money keeping them alive. But there is no reason for them to live. I mean, we may have an emotional attachment to companies like Bed Bath & Beyond and Radio Shack for various reasons. And obviously, there's a loss of jobs and there's a big impact on communities. But, but you know, in, in, you know, harsh, you know, bare capitalistic terms, do we really care about their demise? Yeah, this is really interesting to me. I, I was speaking with um, Ed Altman, who is a pretty famous finance professor at NYU. He invented something called the Z-score. It's a default prediction metric. And I asked him, we were talking about repeat bankruptcies, so-called chapter 22s. And I asked him, like, why does, why, why does it matter if companies keep failing over and over again? Like, who cares? The people stay employed. Um, and you know, we get to keep going to the, some, some retailer that we like. And his take on that was this is money and time and energy that could be put into more productive endeavors. That's why it matters. I thought it was fascinating. I haven't thought about it like that. Um, so these, these, these kind of zombie companies that maybe don't really have a reason to exist, the people that are taking care of these firms and employed by them, it'll be painful for them to disappear or shrink substantially, um, but it may be more productive overall to shift those resources that are propping up something that just shouldn't be alive in its current form and moving them into some other area of the economy. So short-term pain, but maybe long-term gain for the U.S. economy. But, but you mentioned repeat bankruptcies. I mean, as we call them, chapter 22s. That just seems like a waste of time. I mean, you know, is the bankruptcy system really working in this country? Such a good question. Yeah, I mean, we, we have seen um, more Chapter 22s, again, uh, in line with the general rise in bankruptcies, more Chapter 22s this year than we've seen since 2009. Um, and 
what does it say about the bankruptcy system? I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing because in the U.S., restructuring plans aren't supposed to get approved by a federal judge unless there's some specific language. But the general idea is that you need to not go bankrupt again. It needs to be pretty clear that this plan is going to fix the company's problems because the bankruptcy court can do all kinds of things that you can't get anywhere else. You can just reject leases. You can force people to accept less than they're owed, um, all in the name of restructuring a company. So it's, it's not great. It doesn't mean the bankruptcy system is broken, but seeing an uptick in repeat filers is, um, it, it's, it's ugly. You don't love it. Supposed to be the best system in the world, but um, yeah, that's that's a, that's an interesting uh, statement. But um, before we talk to Jamin Patel at Bloomberg Intelligence, what's the next big story to watch on your beat, Jeremy? What else do we need to worry about? What is the next big story? That's a hard one to answer, James, because all of a sudden we've gotten so busy that I feel like I'm treading water. Um, the, the, this is this is the thing that we have been waiting for. Um, it's 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 felt like when are rates going to go up and what is that going to mean um and kind of out of nowhere here it seems like the mood has just flipped um and there are uh lots of companies that are that are on the cusp lenders are organizing all the time and they're concerned um about their debt holdings so the the big story is uh stay glued to your terminals and bloomberg.com because there are many more bankruptcies to come Great stuff. Jeremy Hill from Bloomberg News, thanks so much for joining us. Do, as Jeremy said, read all of his scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Moving on to another big topic, as I mentioned earlier, we are very fortunate to have with us Jamin Patel, who looks at utilities for Bloomberg Intelligence. What's going on with utilities, Jamin? Tons of bad news out there, as uh, Jeremy's just outlined for us. Shouldn't we just be taking all our cash and keeping it in a mattress right now, or at very least in an easy access savings account with a 5% uh, yield? I mean, why should we be looking at utilities? Well, that easy access account um, is, may, may give you a 5% yield, but how long is it going to give you that for, right? Um, if, if, if rates start coming down, and, and I'm not calling uh, for, for any decline anytime soon. Um, but if they do, then you want to start looking at something that you can tie your money up in uh, for a little bit longer. Um, and that's why utility bonds, um, a lot of people would say utility stocks too, but we'll, we'll talk about the differences between those two. Um, it, it's interesting uh, that you know, we, we started this off uh, talking about bankruptcies because bankruptcies in the utility sector, and one of the reasons why uh, the sector, at least at the operating utilities um, level, um, is, is considered a, a refuge during times of turmoil. Um, we've had very few bankruptcies. Um, they've always been related to um, something very specific uh, going on as opposed to what, what happens with the sector as a whole. Um, in fact, I, I, beyond the PG&E bankruptcies, which we're all familiar with, I can only remember in the 30 years I've covered this sector, uh, Public Service New Hampshire and Texas New Mexico Power. And in both those cases, bondholders came out whole. Uh, and, and the same with PG&E. In fact, with PG&E, bondholders weren't secured at the utility level, and uh, they came out secured. Other than those companies you just mentioned, what, what are we talking about in utilities? Because it does cover a huge range of companies, right? It does. It does. You've got you know over over uh, 100 different utilities around the country. Um, uh, most of them are uh, fall under the uh, investor-owned utility uh, uh, sector. 
um, and then you've you've got the uh, you've got the holding companies. Um, now, if you're down at the operating utility level, uh, imagine you know you're in a situation where you have a monopoly in your service territory. Your rates, uh, the, the the rates that you charge your customers, and therefore your revenues and your earnings stream based on a return on equity, is almost guaranteed, regardless of what the usage is, uh, what weather uh, impact there is, and so on. Uh, in the event of a crisis. Um, as we saw with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, we've seen with FPNL in Florida, we saw in Houston with CNP. Um, if your assets are destroyed uh, or, or uh, very heavily damaged, you have the right to uh, have an adjustment made to your rates to cover those costs over a period of time. Uh, and you can go out and issue debt uh, in the meanwhile. Right? So. You had, you know, PG&E was, was very much a one-off sort of case, in my opinion. Um, but you've got the situation where at the operating utility level, you've almost got a quasi-treasury type of bond. So, as you say, they're a refuge. Um, we are seeing great economic um, financial turmoil right now. Um, so, in terms of, you know, the utility um picks you know what what do you where do you look in terms of like what types of utilities you know where do you look I mean, what, what's what's the best place to be in right now okay so um with that safety comes a price and that's generally lower yields right as you would expect um and at the operating utility level you've got you know you've got a fairly narrow range depending upon the maturity that you're looking at a narrow range of bond spreads um so the real interest tends to come in and the, the, the real credit risk tends to come in at the parent level, right? Because the parent itself is not regulated. It's reliant on dividends coming up from the utilities um, to service both the shareholder dividend as well as to service its own debt. Now, if you have a parent with what just one utility, clearly that's, that's a high risk situation, right? So, and that's what we had with PG&E, what investors see with uh, uh, Edison International. If, if PG&E owned more than one utility, the parent may not have had quite the same problems that it did. And the, but in this case, the parent filed for, for bankruptcy. So what we look for are, are companies that have multiple diverse utilities operating across multiple jurisdictions, companies like Exelon, Duke Energy, um, uh, American Electric Power, and so on. Um, these, these are companies that um, uh, do rely on the, on the dividends coming up to the parent to service their debt, but in the event that you have a situation at one particular utility, you still have cash flows coming up from the others. So you're looking essentially for diversification. Yes, across jurisdictions as well as geographies. Okay, but um, you mentioned there are credit risks. Are you concerned about liquidity or access to capital markets there? Um, not, certainly not at the operating utility level. At the parent level, one of the concerns we've seen um, is that as we've entered this period of high growth, uh, largely driven by renewables uh, and, and perhaps accelerated by the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there's been a significant amount of capex uh, projected and actual down at the utility level. Now that comes with borrowing, right? Now, if you think of traditional utility, the way they finance their capex and investments is approximately 50% debt and 50% equity. Now that equity comes from retained cash flow, right? If, if the capex is higher than you expect, where is that additional equity going to come in from? Um, we've seen in many instances, it's a reduction in dividends that would go up to the parent. And we've actually seen equity coming down from the parent level, right? Uh, 
So where does the parent get that cash? Utilities generally don't issue equity. Um, they, they, they tend to be very reticent to do that, um, although we've seen a little bit of convertible equity um, being, being uh, picking up a little bit here. Um, but they don't buy their, back their stocks either. They just don't have the cash flow to do that. So what we've been seeing is an increasing level of parent debt, and that raises a little bit of a concern. Right? Now, where does that concern come in? It's, if, if you're looking at purely statistics, credit statistics and uh, regular metrics like leverage and debt service and so on, yes, then it's a little bit of a concern. But we did a, we did a, a, a little bit of a, a study recently where we looked at across the entire sector, we looked at the book equity of the operating utilities, took a multiple of that based upon where these have uh, traded or sold um, or where pieces of them have sold recently, um, which was about a two times multiple. That gave us almost a trillion dollars of equity, potential equity that can be released um, and, and released not in the sense that the utility would have to go in and, and the parent would have to go in and sell that utility. They're able to monetize pieces of this. And we've seen that happening with First Energy, uh, Duke Energy recently, where they've sold pieces of their subsidiaries. Uh, to um, to pay down debt at the parent level, and uh, listeners can get that um, survey if they look up your bio on the terminal. Can they, Jamie? Yes, yes, it's okay. in uh, it's in um, something that I call over nine hundred billion equity value could drive utilities firepower. Okay, we'll look that up. Thank you. Um, the other big concern right now is rising interest rates. Um, how does that affect utilities in comparison to other sectors? So, because utilities are regulated. Uh, and all of the, their costs, or most of their costs, based upon how the, the regulators view them and, and whether they approve them or not, are passed through, right? So if you've got any short-term uh, debt um, that's, that's floating, uh, you can apply for that to be passed through as, a, as an inclusion rate. Most of their debt, though, is fixed, right? Utilities are very, very big borrowers, but they tend to, and they're able to borrow for 30-year bonds. Uh, so a lot of their debt, at least at the operating level, is is 30-year uh, bonds. So in the immediate term, they are perhaps more protected from higher interest rates than pretty much any other sector. But they, on the flip side, if you're a holder, you've been hit pretty hard on the duration, right? Um, yes, but then that's, you know, pretty much any sector, right? If you're going to own a 20-year or 30-year bond in technology or banks or, or where have you. So... That's the, the choice bondholder makes, right? And the risk that they run pretty much in any sector. So if you're looking at just sort of, you know, the big picture now as we're heading into potentially a recession, you know, potentially stagflation, there's all sorts of other big risks out there. Is, is the utility sector um, a hedge against this? Is it um, something that you can just, you know, protect your, your returns with and, and clip the coupon? I mean, how do, you, how do you envisage it as a big part of a credit portfolio? Yeah, so I I don't know if I would call it a hedge, but I would I would say that if you want to look at increasing your weighting um, to uh, to protect your portfolio from volatility, then that's something that you may want to consider, right? Um, you know, perhaps the biggest risk that we've got here, other than what I talked about at the at the holding company, is that as as you go through inflation, uh, customers are being hit on multiple fronts, right? Uh, and less able to afford increases in their utility bills. Now, 
if you go back several years when natural gas prices were seven, eight, nine dollars an MCF, and then we saw that decline coming down to two, three dollars, um, it was very easy, or, or I should say, much easier for regulators to allow increase in, in rates for the energy component, uh, excuse me, for the delivery component of a utility bill, because the energy portion was coming down. So customer bills weren't actually going up, right? And then, of course, as we saw natural gas prices uh, rally through the last year, that became much more difficult, right? Now, regulators usually loathe to give rate increases that are in excess of inflation, right? So with inflation being as high as it is, that gives them a little bit more room. Gas prices having come down again gives them a little bit more room uh, for their transmission distribution. But if you start seeing natural gas prices and power prices escalate from here for whatever reason, um, then rate increases may become a little bit more contentious. And on the consumer side, no matter how hit, hard they get hit by inflation, I mean, you can easily dispense with eating out and uh, buying luxury goods, but you have to pay your utility bills. You need the heat and light, right? Absolutely. And if you can't afford them, that's one you know, this is one sector where low-income families can get help from the state. Right. Before we sign off, uh, Jamin, I wanted to ask you about ESG because it is such a big topic for, for investors. And, you know, um, some of these companies aren't the cleanest. Um, there are some issues, you know. How does, how does this fit with an ESG credit portfolio? Well, I think, I think it fits in very well because uh, utilities are the biggest issues of green bonds um, in, in, the, in the country the, as, a, as a sector. Um, if you go back, I want to say maybe 10 or 15 years, uh, coal accounted for 50% uh, of the fuel used for generation. Um, that is now more uh, a percentage that applies to natural gas than you've seen solar and wind um, uh, pick up significantly. So, uh, you know, we many of these companies have committed to zero carbon, depending on, on, on uh, the time period that's involved. Um, the government is completely behind them. Nuclear is becoming a, a bigger factor, a uh, bigger factor from the standpoint it's not going to decline to the extent that we thought it was uh, maybe just a decade ago uh, because it's recognized as a clean fuel. Thanks very much, Jamin Patel of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of his great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Do check it out. And thanks again to Jeremy Hill from Bloomberg News. Read all of his scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.